Take your Bibles now and go to 1 John chapter 1, and we'll begin in verse 9. In 1 John 1, 9 it reads, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Man by nature is born in sin and under its power. His righteousness is viewed by God as nothing more than filthy rags. As far as God is concerned, there are none righteous, no, not one. None that doeth good, no, not one. Together then, both Jew and Gentile are all gone out of the way and together become unprofitable. The single greatest thing then for a man to overcome in his belief system is that in his flesh, or more appropriately by his flesh, he cannot be justified by God. And in Romans chapter 8, verse 8, we read, So then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. Since it will never be on man's own merits that he can gain both fellowship and union with God, then it must come on the grounds of divine mercy. But for mercy to be given, then there must be a confession of sin. And in Psalm 32, 5, we read, I acknowledge my sin unto thee, and mine iniquity have I not hid. I said I will confess my transgressions unto the Lord, and thou forgavest the iniquity of my sin. Salah. Forgiveness of sin without exception in Scripture, in every age and in every generation, demands that confession of sin precedes it. Hence, if a man desires divine forgiveness for his sins against God, then he must openly confess them and not deny their existence. Simply because if sin remains unrepented of, then it is certain that God will not hear human prayer when called upon, including even petitions for forgiveness. And in Psalm 66, 18, we read, If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. Barnes on this verse, If I regard iniquity in my heart, literally, if I have seen iniquity in my heart, that is, if I have indulged in a purpose of iniquity, if I had had a wicked end in view, if I had not been willing to forsake all sin, if I have cherished a purpose of pollution or wrong. The meaning is not literally, if I have seen any iniquity in my heart, for no one can look into his own heart and not see that it is defiled by sin. But if I have cherished it in my soul, if I have gloated over past sins, if I am purposing to commit sin again, if I am not willing to abandon all sin and to be holy, the Lord will not hear me. That is, he will not regard and answer my prayer. The idea is that in order that prayer may be heard, there must be a purpose to forsake all forms of sin, end quote. Without a confession of sin and a willingness to depart from it, then all hope of receiving forgiveness is lost. Consequently, God will pardon none nor give mercy to any who, instead of repenting for sin, continue to engage in it. For forgiveness and pardon, therefore there must be acknowledgement of the wrong done and a genuine desire to not do it again. So that if men are willing to turn away and depart from their sin, then God will eventually and completely remove all previous sin done by them. Barnes on 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins... Pardon in the scriptures always supposes that there is a confession, and there is no promise that it will be imparted unless a full acknowledgement has been made. End quote.
He is faithful and just forgive us our sins. Because God is faithful, provided there is genuine and sincere confession of sin, then God's promise to sinners is twofold. One, there is a promise of forgiveness. Two, there is a promise of removal and a complete and thorough removal of sin. In all things concerning the Christian and every promise made to him, including the forgiveness and removal of sin, the hope of fulfillment rests on God's faithfulness. And in 1 Corinthians 1.9 we read, God is faithful by whom you are called unto the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Barnes on this verse, God is faithful, that is, God is true and constant and will adhere to his promises. He will not deceive. He will not promise and then fail to perform. He will not commence anything which he will not perfect and finish. The object of Paul in introducing the idea of the faithfulness of God here is to show the reason for believing that the Christians at Corinth would be kept unto everlasting life, end quote. It is the nature and character of a holy God that what he has promised he will perform. This will hold true regarding both blessing and judgment. Those then who are certain that God will judge should equally be certain that he will forgive. And those who are certain that he will forgive must not forget that God's faithfulness demands judgment for unconfessed sin as well. God's faithfulness to his people is also seen throughout Scripture in that he will not let them be tempted above which they are able and will likewise protect those called to himself from the evil one. Where sin, temptation, and the evil one is, then God's faithfulness is the strong abiding force that prohibits men from being completely overtaken by sin and its deceptive nature. God's faithfulness also extends much further than just to one person or group of individuals. In fact, his faithfulness is extended and will continue to extend to every generation born on the earth. And in Psalm 119.90 we read, Thy faithfulness is unto all generations. Thou hast established the earth, and it abideth. Barnes on Psalm 119.90, Thy faithfulness, the accomplishment of thy promises, is unto all generations, margin to generation and generation. From one generation to another, the generations of people change and pass away, but thy promises do not change. They are as applicable to one generation as to another. They meet every generation alike. The people of no one age can lay any exclusive claim to them or feel that they were made only for them. They are as universal, as much adapted to the new generations that come upon the earth as the light of the sun ever enduring is or as the fountains and streams which flow from age to age, end quote. In regards to God's faithfulness to forgive sin, the scripture gives insight as to what God will do with it. The Greek word for forgive is ephemai. Its definition from the Strong's is to send away, leave alone, permit. Helps Word Studies defines the word as properly send away, release, discharge. From this definition, we can see how forgiveness mirrors the scapegoat being sent away into the wilderness thus symbolically revealing how God has removed sin from the offender. Aziel, or the scapegoat, is mentioned in Leviticus 16 as part of God's instructions to the Israelites regarding the Day of Atonement. On this day, 
the high priest would first offer a sacrifice for his sins and those of his household. Then he would perform sacrifices for the nation. From the Israelite community, the high priest was instructed to take two male goats for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. The priest brought the animals before the Lord and cast lots between the two goats, one to be a sacrifice and the other to be the scapegoat. The first goat was slaughtered for the sins of the people and its blood used to cleanse the most holy place, the tent of meeting and the altar. After the cleansing, the live goat was brought to the high priest. Laying his hands on the scapegoat, the high priest was to confess over it all the wickedness and rebellion of the Israelites, all their sins, and put them on the goat's head. He shall send the goat away into the wilderness in the care of someone appointed for the task. The goat will carry on itself all their sins to a remote place, and the man shall release it in the wilderness. Symbolically, the scapegoat took on the sins of the Israelites and removed them. For Christians, this is a foreshadowing of Christ, end quote. The Greek word for cleanse is katharizo. Strong's defines it as to cleanse. Helps word study definition is to make pure clean, removing all admixture, intermingling of filth. Where forgiveness provides for separating sin from the sinner, cleansing entails its complete removal. Once the Lord provides forgiveness and cleansing for sin, it cannot nor ever will surface unless it is returned to and committed again. Hence, if a man sincerely, genuinely, and deeply regrets and repents for his sin, then God will honor his promise to forgive him and cleanse him from all unrighteousness. By this it is proven that it is the character and nature of a holy God to forgive and provide mercy for sin. God's wisdom is also such that he knows and is fully aware of man's weak and feeble condition. Because the Lord knows the constitution of what man is, then divine pity is shown to him. And in Psalm 103, verse 14, we read, For he knoweth our frame, he remembereth that we are dust. Ultimately, God forgives the penitent because he knows his frail condition. Mercy is often connected to pity, and it is because of God's pity that mercy for sin is given. Barnes on this verse, For he knoweth our frame, our formation, or what we are made, how we are made, That is, he knows that we are made of dust, that we are frail, that we are subject to decay, that we soon sink under a heavy load. This is given as a reason why he pities us, that we are so frail and feeble, that we are so easily broken down by a pressure of trial. He remembereth that we are dust, made of the earth. In his dealings with us, he does not forget of what frail materials he has made us and how little our frames can bear. He tempers his dealings to the weakness and frailty of our nature, and his compassion interposes where the weight of sorrows would crush us. Remembering, too, our weakness, he interposes by his power to sustain us and to enable us to bear what our frame could not otherwise endure. Isaiah fifty-seven sixteen. For I will not contend forever, neither will I always be wroth, for the, spirit should, for the spirit should fail before me, 
and the souls which I have made, end quote. And in Romans chapter 5, verse 20, we read, Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. Human history has proven since the very earliest of time that sin has abounded in all men. None have ever lived who did not sin repeatedly, often, and daily. The unsaved are spoken of by God as sinners, simply because this defines who and what they really are. Hence, if there was never given sufficient grace and mercy for sin, then all hope for heavenly union with God would be lost. Barnes on this verse, the offense, the offense which had been introduced by Adam, that is, sin, might abound, might increase, that is, would be more apparent, more violent, more extensive. The introduction of the Mosaic Law, instead of diminishing the sins of the people, only increases them. But where sin abounded, alike in all dispensations, before the law and under the law, in all conditions of the human family before the gospel, it was the characteristic that sin was prevalent. Grace, favor, or mercy did much more abound, superabounded. The word is used nowhere else in the New Testament, except in 2 Corinthians 7.4. It means that the pardoning mercy of the gospel greatly triumphed over sin, even over the sins of the Jews, though those sins were greatly aggravated by the light which they enjoyed under the advantages of divine revelation, end quote. Verse 10 now in 1 John. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Whenever there is a denial of sin, it will be simultaneously observed that God's word does not live in a man. By this, it is easy to discern whether sin has been either confessed or denied. Denial of sin and truth are set in contrast one to another, in order that men may know that to embrace one will exclude the presence of the other. Whenever then the truth of God's word resides in men, then confession of their sin will follow. But if sin is denied and a man will not agree with God that he is a sinner, then there will not be any true relationship nor affection for the truth. Since none can truly and genuinely hold the truth in his heart, love its purity, rejoice in its message, and not confess the sin that lives within himself. Barnes on this verse. Verse 10, we make him a liar because he has everywhere affirmed the depravity of all the race. On no point have his declarations been made more positive and uniform than on the fact of the universal sinfulness of man. And his word is not in us, his truth that is. We have no true religion. The whole system of Christianity is based on the fact that man is a fallen being and needs a savior. And unless a man admits that, of course, he cannot be a Christian, end quote. Chapter two, verse one now. My little children, these things write I unto you, that you sin not, and or but if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. In regards to sin, men need an advocate, someone to plead their cause to God, this advocate is Jesus Christ the righteous. The Greek word for advocate is parakletos. Helps word study defines the word as from para, from close beside, and kaleo, to make a call. 
properly a legal advocate who makes the righteous judgment call because close enough to the situation. Jesus, as an advocate, gives evidence that stands up in heavenly court that his death for sin is sufficient to appease divine judgment for it. He who sins, God's word states, must die. And in dying for sin and in the place of sinners, this judgment has been executed through the death of Christ for sin. By paying the cost for sin, Christ pleads that divine judgment has been met and the justice of God was not broken. Because Christ is more than able to enter God's divine presence and plead mercy for the penitent, citing his own work in dying for sin, then sinners need not to stand alone when facing the Lord. It is here that the great importance and significance of Jesus' ministry becomes observable. Barnes on this verse, the nature of his advocacy, Jesus Christ, may be stated in the following particulars. One, he admits the guilt of those for whom he becomes the advocate, to the full extent charged on them by the law of God and by their own consciences. He does not attempt to hide or conceal it. He makes no apology for it. He neither attempts to deny the fact nor to show that they had a right to do as they have done. He could not do this, for it would not be true. And any plea before the throne of God, which should be based on a denial of our guilt, would be fatal to our cause. Two, as an advocate, he undertakes to be security that no wrong shall be done to the universe if we are not punished as we deserve. That is, if we are pardoned and treated as if we had not sinned. This he does by pleading what he has done in behalf of people. That is, by the plea that his sufferings and death in behalf of sinners have done as much to honor the law and to maintain the truth and justice of God and to prevent the extension of apostasy as if the offenders themselves had suffered the full penalty of the law. Three, as an advocate, he becomes a surety for our good behavior, gives a pledge to justice that we will obey the laws of God, and that he will keep us in the paths of obedience and truth, that, if pardoned, we will not continue to rebel. Jesus Christ the righteous is one who is eminently righteous himself, and who possesses the means of rendering others righteousness. It is an appropriate feeling when we come before God in His name that we come pleading the merits of one who is eminently righteous and on account of whose righteousness we may be justified and saved. End quote. For the believer, the grounds for both being forgiven and made righteous by God resides in the holiness righteousness, and obedience of Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 2.22 Who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. In respect to Jesus Christ, he was in all respects holy and without sin. Who did no sin reveals the true character of the Savior. It is on these grounds of Christ's perfect righteousness that fallen man is redeemed. Because Christ is completely holy, righteous, and without sin, his people can be made those things through him. Verse 2 now, and he, Jesus Christ, is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. The Greek word for propitiation is heliosmos. Uh, Helps Word Study defines it as properly propitiation, an offering to appease, satisfy an angry, offended party.
the word is only used twice in 1 John 2, 2 and 4, 10. Both times of Christ's atoning blood that appeases God's wrath on all confessed sin. By the sacrifice of himself, Jesus Christ provided the ultimate propitiation. Sin at its core is a breaking, disregarding, and setting at naught divine will. It is when men, though they know the will of God, abandon it in favor of doing their own will instead. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him, Jesus Christ, the iniquity of us all. He who does not go God's way goes his own way. And because of this, if Christ did not seek out sinners after dying for them, then man would forever remain estranged from God. It is also both right and righteous that God is greatly displeased with sinners. And men should not try and diminish the truth that God's anger exists towards all who transgress his laws. By Jesus Christ taking the place of the sinner and receiving divine judgment for him, God deems the penalty for sin has been met and justice satisfied. The means by which grace is given to the sinner is seen by how through Jesus Christ's obedience and not man's shall many be made righteous. And in Romans chapter 5 verse 19 we read, For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, that's in reference to Adam, so by the obedience of one, Jesus Christ, shall many be made righteous. Just as through one man's Adam's disobedience many were made sinners, so also through Jesus Christ's obedience shall many be made righteous. Consequently, there will be many, a vast amount, an innumerable number of previous sinners who shall, with utmost certainty, be made righteous through the Son of God. The only question is, who are these blessed souls to whom God's righteousness shall be imputed? 1 John chapter 2, verse 3 now. And hereby we do know that we know Him if we keep His commandments. Those who have come to truly know God keep His commandments. And it is by keeping divine commandments that men can know their knowledge of God is real and genuine. This is why there is no man who has been cleansed of his sin and has come to correctly be acquainted with the Son of God who does not willingly, joyfully, and with great desire keep Christ's commandments or his commandments. For the truly saved, subjection to the will of God is neither arduous nor difficult. It is not a burden but a blessing for the redeemed to yield obedience to God. Barnes on 1 John 2, 3. And hereby we do know that we know him, to wit, by that which follows. We have evidence that we are truly acquainted with him and with the requirements of his religion. That is, that we are truly his friends. The word him in this verse seems to refer to the Savior. The apostle had stated in the previous part of this epistle some of the leading points revealed by the Christian religion. And he here enters on the consideration of the nature of the evidence required to show that we are personally interested in it or that we are true Christians. A large part of the epistle is occupied with this subject. The first, the grand evidence that without which all others would be in vain, he says is that we keep his commandments, end quote. 
The two most significant of Christ's commandments are given in Matthew's gospel. And in Matthew 22, verse 36, we read, Master, which is the great commandment in the law? Jesus said unto him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like unto it, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. The great commandments that Jesus instructed his followers to live by consisted of them loving both God and his people. The greatest evidence also that a man has kept Christ's words is that he abides in God's love. Since those who truly love the Lord equally love his people. 1 John 4.20 If a man say, I love God, and hateth his brother, he is a liar. For he that loveth not his brother whom he hath seen, how can he love God whom he hath not seen? Ultimately, it is by the possession of love that every man can actually gauge if he is a true disciple of Christ or not. Verse 4 now. He that saith, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. For the second time the apostle reveals whom God reveals as liars. One, if men refuse to confess themselves as sinners. And two, if there is a claim and a false assumption of knowing God, yet the claimers do not keep his commandments. He thus who denies the presence of sin in himself is a liar, even as he who claims to know God but does not keep his commandments, has also by divine revelation been marked out by God as a liar. Barnes on 2.4 He that saith I know him, he who professes to be acquainted with the Savior, or who professes to be a Christian, and keepeth not his commandments, what he is appointed to be observed by his people, that is, he who does not obey him, is a liar, makes a false profession, professes to have that which he really has not. Such a profession is a falsehood, because there can be no true religion where one does not obey the law of God." End quote. Verse 5 now, But whoso keepeth his word in him, verily is the love of God perfected. Hereby know that we are in him. If God's word is kept by his people, then God's own love will be perfected in them. The Greek word perfected is teleo. Strong's defines it as to bring to an end, to complete, perfect. As a course, a race, or the like. I complete, finish. As of time or prediction, I accomplish. I make perfect, pass, I am perfected. Whenever, therefore, there exists true obedience to divine law, its fruit shall be the perfection of love in the obedient one. Love is a fruit of the Spirit, and all who are truly led by it will manifest this fruit in their lives. It is also the increase and expansion of the love of God in the Christian's heart that causes him to know that he is in God and God in him. Ultimately, love and obedience cannot be separated. This is also why whenever there is an absence of divine love, no real obedience to God exists. And though men may claim they have kept God's commandments, if love is vacant, then it is not obedience and faith that are pursued, but only religious duty. Barnes on this, verse 1 John 2, 5. In him verily is the love of God perfected. He who professes to have the love of God in his heart, and that love receives its completion or filling up by obedience to the will of God. That obedience is the proper carrying out or the exponent 
of the love which exists in the heart. Love to the Savior would be defective without that, for it is never complete without obedience. End quote. Verse 6 now. He that saith he abideth in him ought himself to walk even as he walked. If any claim relationship with Jesus Christ, they should strive to walk as he walked. The standard for the Christian's behavior is therefore seen in his Savior. It is through Christ that he has been born again, given a new heart, and become a completely new creature. When a man seeks to walk as Christ walked, he will, like the Lord, be about the Father's business, be willing to humble himself to serve the needs of others, follow Christ's example of being meek and lowly in heart, lose his life to God, and ultimately fulfill the Great Commission. Barnes on 1 John 2, 6. He that saith, he abideth in him. The Greek is remains in him. That is, abides or remains in the belief of his doctrines and in the comfort and practice of religion. The expression is one of those which refers to the intimate union between Christ and his people. A great variety of phrase is employed to denote that. For the meaning of this word in John, see the notes in 1 John 3, 6. Ought himself also to walk even as he walked. Ought to live and act as he did. If he is one with him or professes to be united to him, he ought to imitate him in all things. Compare John thirteen fifteen. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done unto you. End quote. Verse 7 now. Brethren, I write no new commandment unto you, but an old commandment which you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you have heard from the beginning. Benson on this verse, the new commandment, says McKnight, of which the apostle speaks, is that contained in 1 John 2, 6, that Christ's disciples ought to walk even as he walked, and in particular that, as Christ laid down his life for his people, they ought to lay down their lives for one another. Thus, to walk as Christ walked, St. John, with great propriety, termed a new commandment, because notwithstanding, the precept to love one another was strongly enjoined in the law of Moses. Consequently, was not a new commandment. The precept to love one another as Christ loved us was certainly a new commandment, and so is termed by Christ himself, and is thus explained and inculcated. He laid down his life for us. Therefore, we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. End quote. When men become imitators of Jesus Christ, they prove themselves as true followers of God. Amen.